Hello, and welcome to the teaching ministry of Impact Family Church. For more information, including service times and directions, or to find out more about us, you can visit our website at www.impactfamilychurch.com. We trust you'll be blessed by today's message. Well, you're ready to get into the Word tonight. Hallelujah. Well, we've been talking about the last about three weeks. We've been talking about... Uh, renewing the mind and disciplining the flesh and, and and so sort of tonight we're sort of back on the topic and don't go don't don't moan please don't moan it's going to be good <laughs> um, but uh, I just can't quite get away from some of this stuff and so this is kind of a, a little a little s- sort of different note on the same subject but but you know anyway I think you'll get to where we're going I want you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 8 Hallelujah. There is um, a crisis in our country and just in people in general, you know, where their mental health is, is coming from and, and just living life, you know, issues of self-esteem. And, you know, if you go into, if you go into bookstores, I mean, or just a regular secular bookstore, you'll find huge sections on self-help. Well, you know, I want to, we won't talk about that tonight. We won't talk about that. And it kind of has to, goes back with where we started on, you know, three weeks ago about renewing the mind. But in Psalm chapter 8, verse 4, it says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him. For you have made him a little lower than the angels and have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. You have put all things under his feet. And if you, if you go over to Hebrews 2, verses 6 through 7, you're going to find where they quoted this same psalm. And um, the thing about it here is there's, there's so much in these three verses. What is man that you're mindful of him? I mean, the psalmist was going, Lord. I mean, you're the creator of heaven and earth because you, you, know, you, you go back where it starts in, in verse 1 of Psalm 8. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings have you ordained praise because of the and thy enemies. And you've, and you've you're still the enemy and the avenger. You know, he was just, he was just marveling at how, how consumed God is with man. And he just was like, well, what happened? But he went on to say, he said, you've made him a little lower than the angels. Now, let me, let me, just, let me just stop right here and clue you. If you go back to Genesis 1, oh, well, let's just go back to Genesis 1. Okay, we'll just do that. I want you to see this. Genesis 1, verse 26. It says, and God said... Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the sea and over the fowl of the air. But here, God said, let us make man in our image. He did not make you a little lower than the angels. Actually, there is some translations that say, when it says angels here, it says really the word there, it should be Elohim, which is mean God. It means God, you made him a little lower than yourself, basically. You are above and beyond angels. Angels are not the creation that you are. You know, it, maybe this is just one of my little, little things, little quirky things, but it, it kind of it like gives me just a little pause when people say, when somebody goes to heaven, they be, now they're an angel now. No, they're not. For them to become an angel means they took a step down. When you die and you go to heaven, you do not become an angel. You, are, you have been and you are created in the image of God. You are far superior to any angelic being. And for you to say, oh, well, they, you know, they're, they're now my angel watching over. No, they're not. They're not an angel watching over you. They are part of the great cloud of witnesses that are cheering you on. That's what they are. And you need to understand that. 
You know, and, and, and you think, well, that's not, not a big deal. Why are you making such a big deal about it? It is a big deal. You need to know who and what you are. You have been created in the image of God himself. You have been created to be as near like him as possible without being him. But you are far and away superior to any, any other creature that's in heaven. You may, that's, why, that's why angels look and wonder in amazement when they see God's hand in the affairs of men. They, they look and go, they, don't under, they cannot understand how God loves these beings called men. They don't, they, don't, they don't see it because they're not men. And men will never be angels. And you, I just, you know, it's just one of those little quirky things, you know. I mean, you, that's really sweet to say somebody became a but it's not correct. And we need, if anything, we need to make sure that how we view ourselves is the way God views us. He views us as, as these wonderful beings that are so close in nature to him. And that's how we need to see ourselves. But here it says um, in verse, uh, let's see, back in Psalms 8, you should have just, I should have just had you keep your finger there. In verse um, 5, it says, you have crowned him with glory and honor. He hasn't crowned any angels with glory and honor. No angels have got glory and honor. But if you go to some other translations, these words glory and honor can also be translated esteem and splendor. They can be translated dignity and worth. You have crowned him. He has made you royalty. You don't crown somebody who's not royalty. You've been born into a royal family. Hallelujah. You've been born of royalty. The king of kings and the lord of lords, you're connected your family. You've been born into that same family. Hallelujah. And he, and, he is, and he has clothed you with dignity and worth. Well, now, the last time I saw something about being clothed with glory was over in the garden. Adam and Eve were so clothed in glory, they had no consciousness of their physical bodies. They had no clue they were naked. No clue. They were so clothed with God's glory. And so... We, we also find here that it says that you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Go back to Genesis 126. Hallelujah. Here in Genesis 126, he says, let us make men after our, in, in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. God gave man dominion and authority in this world. In Hebrews 2, verses 6 through 7, he, you know, we see this again. Adam did not rule by force. He ruled because of the authority that he had been given by God who created him. He knew who he was. And all of his authority was based in who he was. You know... The world will come along and, and they'll act like they act because they're, they're sinners. I think somebody said this, maybe it was Sunday, maybe maybe pastor said it. You know, the sinner's going to act like they do because they're sinners, because they don't know God. Because you know, if you were to cover John 8, 44, it says you're of your father, the devil. Well, that's the family they're in, but we're not in that family. You know, we're very different from that family, totally opposite from that family. In Ephesians 2, 22, where he called them the children of disobedience. But we're the children of light. And so here he is, you know, Adam is in the garden. He's clothed with glory. All the self-worth he ever needed, all the self-esteem he ever needed was right there. Already present in him because he was, he was just enveloped in the glory of God. That's because he knew who he was. 
God had told him, you will have dominion, you'll have authority, you'll subdue the earth, you'll replenish, and after you, you multiply, you, this, is, this is what you are, this is who you are, this is what you're going to do. And that's where Adam, that's where he came from. Everything he did came out of that, based out of who he was and what he had, what God had given him. And yet, when he sinned, as soon as he sinned, he lost that place of self-worth. Well, how do you know that? Well, you know, here you go. You go back here. Um, when, after they had sinned, verse, chapter 3, verse 7, it says, and the, after they ate the fruit, it says, and the eyes of them both were opened. They had lost their self-esteem right here. And they knew that they were naked. The glory of God had lifted. Now, what they saw was just themselves. And it says, they sewed fig leaves together and made aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the, cool, in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God. They became naked. They became, became self-conscious. They, became, they felt inadequate. Why? How do you know that? Because they hid themselves from God. Only somebody who doesn't feel like they're worth anything is going to hide from God. If they've lost their sense of self-worth, they'll hide from God. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They tried to clothe themselves. Well, now, a fig leaf, well, I guess that's something, but it's not very lasting. I mean, it's going to dry up and just, you know, crumble. And so what did God do? God had to come along and kill animals and make clothing for them out of those skins. God had a provision for them, but it wasn't the best thing. It was better than a fig leaf. It was something God had provided, but it wasn't the best thing. But you know what? It kind of gives, gives you an idea of what it's like for sometimes, you know, we, we try to do something for ourselves, in and of ourselves, that really only God can do. And we think it, you know, we've done really good so many times. And what we've done is pitiful by comparison to what God wants to do for us. You know, the devil wants us to look everywhere but to God for our sense of self-worth. You know, and, and here in, in these days, you know, everybody's going to the self-help counters and they're trying to figure out how to overcome a bad childhood, a dysfunctional family. They're trying to, they're doing all these things. They're, it's like looking for love in all the wrong places. They're looking for self-esteem in all the wrong places. The only place you're ever going to find the real self-esteem for your life is in God. That's, that's the only place. And, uh, and the problem here is that because we're, we, we tend to not think that way, but when we're not born again, there's no way we can think that way. We can't, we can't really base it on what God has said about it because we don't know what God has said about us. But in the natural thing, realm of things, what we're doing is we're basing our lives and our self-worth on performance. You know, our, our self-esteem is in the performance of parents, of teachers, of bullies at school. You know, that, that's, where, that's where these things are allowed to influence us and, and strip away any self-esteem we might have. But really, the lack of self-esteem comes from the very fact that we're sinners. And deep inside of every person, they know there's something missing. They know that there's something that they're not fulfilled and that what they're looking for is God. And so anyway, we, we let our self-esteem be shaped by outward things. We let our, self, our self-esteem be shaped by how people interact with us, how we interact with people. You know, it's all performance-based. But see, you know, we have to get to a place where we understand that, that our self-esteem and our self-worth is not a performance-based thing. It's a God-based thing. It's a word-based thing. And, and we, we allow things to come into our, into our lives. But I'm telling you what, when you, when you go back and you find out that we can't look to anything other than God's word, then we can take all those other things and set them aside. And that's what we have to do. Um, only the word of God can give you the self-esteem and the self-worth that you're looking for. I mean, he's crowned us with glory, and sin causes us to fall short of that glory. 
If you go over to Romans, and it, it talks about the fact that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know, and it really kind of boils down to this. How can I love you unless I know how much God loves me? How can I minister to anybody unless I have a realization of what God has done for me and if I don't know the heart of God for myself? My heart cannot engage someone else fully and completely because I don't know how God's heart for me. You know, and it's so interconnected, you know. But just realize that nothing you can do, and Pastor says there's so many, so often, you know, when he's given an invitation for salvation, that, you know, we can't come to God on the basis of our good works. We can't come to God trusting in anything other than the shed blood of Jesus. That's, that's where it all comes from. That's, where we, that's how we can come to God. You know, and, and yet people in this world, you know, there are things that we do that, that we think gives us self-esteem. You know, people who are a success in business, people who, who do anything with great success, even people who are, and I, as I was thinking about this today, that when you see somebody who's extremely competitive that really is somebody who's going to get their, their value, their, their self-esteem comes from how good that they are at something. Your self-worth can't be based in how good you are at natural things. It just can't. You know, I have a very competitive nature with some things. I mean, I, you know, in school, I, I mean, I really didn't care for school all that much, but I hated for anybody else to be any, do any better than me. I hated to see somebody else get a 99 and I had a 98. I mean, you know, just, you know, that was my motivation for, for you know, studying more and, and getting in there and doing it right. And, and that's, sometimes we look at competitiveness, you know, as, as okay, okay, I'm, I'm self-motivated. Well, if you're not careful... You can have a real issue when you come up against something that you're not good at. You know, then for, you know, I can see a lot of people, you know, they've got a competitive nature and they want to be top of their class. They want to be top of the rung. They want to be, they want to be the person who wins all the games. They, you know, all this. If you're not careful, that turns into pride and that turns into to, to a weakness that if anything you fail at will devastate you. You hear me? You come against, up against something that you fail at, it's devastating. My oldest child is very self-motivated, always has been. And when he was in school, he did great. Now, he, he, he had to study very little. And so as a, as a result of that, he didn't learn how to study. But he got through, you know, all of his, his you know, secondary education. He got all the way through the 12th grade, valedictorian in his class. He is top in his class. You know, there's, it's great. And he got to college. And he was in an honors dorm. Everybody there was valedictorians and salutatorians. Everybody. So now it's like, you are not so special. And so he had to, you know, he kind of had to deal with that. Okay, everybody's like me. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, he got, he got going. He got into his college, you know, his classes and stuff. And, and he ran up against something one day where he failed a big test. He was mortified, devastated. He failed. Not only did he not do well, he failed something. And it was like, I mean, it just, it just, rocked his world. But in the meantime, it helped him learn that he had to study. <laughs> and so that helped him in the long run. But you know, there are some people who just can't, if they fail at anything, if anything's not perfect in their lives, then they have issues with feeling like they're okay. You know, we can't afford to let our, our self-worth be based in anything that we do from a natural standpoint. Nothing. Jesus had done nothing of any great importance when the Father descended from heaven like a dove and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He hadn't turned water into wine. He hadn't healed anybody. He hadn't raised anybody from the dead. He hadn't walked on water. 
There was nothing of note happening in his life that was performance-related, and yet God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Tells me that there is nothing you and I do that, that God's going to be requiring of us to cause him to love us. God requires nothing of you. He requires nothing. Which also says there's nothing I can do to make him stop loving me. Now the grace people can take that to an extreme, but, that, but, but the, truth, the truth is there. Nothing you've ever done, that you've, he's never required you to do anything that would make him love you. Now nothing you do or don't do will stop him from loving you. And so, and so that's, that's where God wants us to be. Go with me over to Colossians, the first chapter. Colossians 1, verse 25. It says, Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but is now made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Can you imagine? That's the thing God hid for generations, that one day he could say, Christ in you, the hope of glory. In, in Christ, the glory of God that Adam and Eve had has been, re- has been restored. And with that glory comes your dignity, your self-esteem, and your worth, all because of what Jesus Christ has done. Because why? In 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, we have been made new creations, brand new. Old things are passed away. Everything of, of, of that was good, everything that was bad... It's, 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 it's nothing anymore. It's absolutely nothing. You're a brand new creation in Christ Jesus. It's, it's, if it's not a reality to you, then you're only just trying to change. And so many, so many people don't know it, but even so many, pe- so many people who are believers don't know it, that it's Christ in you because you have been made a new creation because of Christ in you. So any change that doesn't come from a revelation that you're a new man on the inside is just a carnal, natural effort. It's not the result of that supernatural transformation that has happened on the inside of you. And the changes you might try to make, they may make some difference, but I'm telling you, they're not lasting. They're not lasting. You know, that's why so many times, you know, you, you people, you know, want to, want to to go talk it out and have support groups and this kind of stuff. Listen, the only thing that will ever completely change your life is just to knowing who you are in him. Because the changes you can make on your own might make some difference. But when you fail, when those changes, something happens and you fail at something you thought you had under control, then you fall subject to another sense of condemnation and you lose all your self-worth because I've, I've failed again. How many people have just given up because they failed again? You look at Thomas Edison. He tried to invent the light bulb. I think it was over a thousand times. Now, how many of us would have kept on going a thousand times? And yet he didn't let it stop him. He did, I mean, for him, every failure was like, okay, that's one more thing that didn't work. Okay, let's try something else. You know, we, we need to kind of have that same resolve. If we fail, get up and let's try it again. A little tiny baby, that when they're just beginning to walk, how many times do they fall down? I mean, it's, it's a constant thing. They're up, they're down, they're up, they're down, they're up, they're down, they're up, they're down. Thank goodness it wears them out. Hallelujah. <laughs> You know, but, but does anybody look at him and say, you are an utter failure because you have not learned how to walk yet? No. They just get up and keep on going and keep on until they master it. You know, 
as believers, we need to get up and keep on going until we master it because that's what he's wanting to do on the inside of us. It's already there. We're, we're taking what's on the inside and we're making a change and a difference on the outside. We used to sing that song, there's something on the inside, working on the outside. Oh, what a change in my life. It can only start from the inside. I mean, we have to let go of all what this world has given to us that, that has, has made us think that we're worth something and, and, and go back to the word and find out what God says about because that's the only place that's going to be lasting. Amen. Somebody can come and just pull the rug out from under you, you know, naturally speaking, though you thought they thought that you thought they thought you were just wonderful. One disagreement, one dissension, you know, and suddenly they are your worst enemies and that can devastate a person. See, God's not going to do that. He's made a change on the inside of you and you can take what he's put on the inside of you and you can use it to transform this body and this mind in such a way that you never have a problem with self-esteem ever again, ever again. Hallelujah. You know, Colossians 2, 12 says that we were qualified, we were made worthy as soon as we were born again. As soon as we were born again. You know, when we get born again, we need to be confident that our sins are forgiven and forgotten. But we also need to learn to be confident that we are the righteousness of God in Christ. You know, Isaiah 64, 6 says, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. You cannot do it in and of yourself because it never works. No outward change is going to take place until we actually establish ourselves on the transformation that's, been, that's taken place on the inside of you. You can't say that too many times. Outward only always follows what happens on the inward side. Um, you know, Romans 8, let's see, let's go over there real quick. Romans 8, hallelujah. I think this is in the Message Bible, 8 and verse 5, we'll start with there. Sometimes, you know, some tra- other translations might help. And I, I'm, I'm still stuck in the King James. Pastor keeps saying, why do you switch at least to the New King James? I don't know, because I've got my Bible all marked up, and I don't want to have to switch it. Um, it's verse 5 in, in regular King James. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Now, in the Message Bible, it says here, now you do realize the Message Bible is a paraphrase. Um, Those who think they can do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle, but never get around to exercising it in real life. Those who trust God's action in them find that God's spirit is in them, living and breathing God. Obsession with self in these matters is a dead end. Attention to God leads us out into the open into a spacious free life. Focusing on the self is the opposite of focusing on God. Anyone completely absorbed in, in self ignores God, ends up thinking more about self than God. That person ignores who God is and what he is doing, and God is not pleased at being ignored. You know, it cannot be overstated how important it is for you to realize who you are. You know, when somebody gets born again you know, for the very first time and they, they want to get up, they're excited about getting into the Word, reading the Word, getting, getting a Bible, and they want to go start in strange places sometimes. You go, no, go start over in the epistles because you, when you get born again, one of the very first things you need to figure out is who you are. That's where everything else that you're going to re- ever receive from God has its very core. If you don't know who you are, when the enemy comes and tells you that you failed too many times and now God's not going to heal you this time, you can look at him and say, no way, bud, I know who I am. 
when a, when a need, a financial need presents itself and the devil says, you have been so wasteful, you've done this, you've done that, you've done the other, and he does this all the time. You know, you made such a bad decision, you've, you, you blew it. I mean, you knew you weren't supposed to do that and you did it anyway. You got yourself in this, you messed yourself. You won't be able to say, I know provision is mine. I know God's got a supply for me. Because you see, it's not based on what you did, the mistakes you made. It's based on the fact that who you are. It's based on the fact that God says, you're my beloved. I love you. I'm going to take care of you. I provided everything for you. When Jesus died, he provided salvation from sin. He provided prosperity. He provided healing. He provided victory. He provided all those things. It's all yours. And see, when we don't become extremely and intimately acquainted with who we are and what we are, then the enemy has got an inroad into convincing us of something that's not real. He will get us to a place where we're, we're just not sure enough to just trust God. Just trust him. You know, and, and so I, you know, I, I go back to Brother Hagin's little book, In Him. And I meant to go get one uh, and, and have it up here. But if you don't have that little book, you need to go get it. Toward the back of that, there's like 130-something scriptures, you know, about who you are in Christ. It would, it would not be a bad idea for you to go get a brand-new notebook of some kind, a new journal or something, and go and write each individual scripture down in a notebook and then write something underneath each one of those scriptures about how it applies to you. By the time you get through with that list, you ought to be shouting, running, dancing, jumping, you know, and ready to go tell somebody else what you found out. But when you get that firmly established on the inside of you, nothing the devil can say about you will ever matter again. And actually, the truth be told, if you really get a a full revelation of it, nothing anybody else says about you will ever matter again. Let me take it a little further. Nothing that anybody else says to you will ever matter again. If we really understand who we are in Christ and what we are and how much he loves us, we will never be offended again at anybody. Mm, That was a new run for me this afternoon when I read that. I'm going, oh, If I really understand what God has done for me in Christ, then I wouldn't be offended at anybody again. Oh, that's interesting. Tells me I got some work to do, folks. How about you? Amen. You know, there's a a phrase that says hurting people hurt people. Well, I will choose not to be a hurting person. By getting into the word and finding out who I am. Um, Romans 3. We're just close by. 3. Romans 3, starting in verse 3. Here's the thing. We're just going to start in verse 3, but it's verse 4 we want to actually look at. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect or rendered powerless? God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, thou that mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Listen, get to the place where every man is a liar, but God is true. God is true. What he says in, a, in his word about you is true. It's true. Amen. The enemy will come, come and whisper in your ear, that's not for you. That's not true. That's not true about you. Look at you, what a mess you are. Look at you, what you've done. Let God be true and every man and every devil a liar. Hallelujah. In 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5, we've read this the last couple of weeks, and it talks about having, taking every thought captive. You have to do this for yourself. You can't. You can come and you can listen to all the sermons in the world. You can come in and we could we could teach on in Him realities from now until Jesus comes back. But if you don't get into the Word for yourself and it become real to you, it is 
pointless. It says, you take captivity. You take every thought captivity to the obedience of the word. You do it. Um, who is it? Here we have, was it the Amplified? And Second Corinthians 10, let me find it real fast. Second Corinthians 10. Verses 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not carrying on our warfare according to the flesh and using mere human weapons. For the weapons of our warfare are not physical, weapons of flesh and blood, but they are mighty before God for the overthrow and destruction of strongholds. Inasmuch as we refute arguments and theories and reasonings and every proud and lofty thing that sets itself up against the true knowledge of God, and we lead every thought and purpose away captive into the obedience of Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. See, we need to refute all arguments, all theories, all reasonings. God's word is not a theory. The devil's stuff is a theory. God's is not. His word is completely true. You know, don't look to somebody else, any natural person, to confirm your worth. Don't look to another, your spouse, your parents, your, your, your boss, nobody to confirm what you really are worth to, to God. You know, you, you, don't, you don't need to go to somebody else saying, you know, well, you know what, you don't come to pastor and say, well, what do you think my giftings are? You're supposed to know that for yourself. You're, you're supposed to let God talk to you. You know, it's not our job to tell you what your giftings and callings are. Obviously, we recognize those things in people from time to time, but it's not my job to tell you what they are. It should be evident what they are to not just us, but to, some, to everybody else. You know, there, we had somebody come in our office a number of years ago and talk about wanting, um, wanting to get a recommendation, a pastoral recommendation to go to Rama, and couldn't, couldn't, could not confirm what they thought was their calling because there was no fruit. No fruit. They didn't even come to church on a regular basis. They never tithed, ever, the whole time they were here. You know, there was, there was, no, there was no heart for the local church. There was no heart for ministry. And that you, you can't just up and go, oh, well, I'm called to the ministry. No, you're not. You know, God, God may have plans for you in the future, but, you know, there's some things you have to do in, in, in response to what God wants you to do. So don't look for somebody else to tell you what they are and then you go base anything off of that. But if you do have a call on your life and you do know it, you've spent time in the Word, you know, you, you've, you've been plugged into your local church, you have a heart for ministry. The person who's called into ministry is the person who can't do enough. I mean, there are times I've had to sit people down and say, I think you've got one too many jobs. You know, stop. Let somebody else have a, have a chance to do that particular position. Don't do that. You know, but when you know without a shadow of a doubt what your gift and calling is, it doesn't matter who thinks what. You, you know what you know what you know. But fruit should be there for everybody else to see. Um, any thought that says I don't measure up, you have to look at that and go, nope, nope, nope. God says, I do measure up. Philippians 2, 2 says, Paul, Paul said, to work out your own salvation, which means maximum effort coming from the inside. You work it out. You put some effort into transforming, renewing this mind and making this flesh line up. You put maximum effort from the inside out. You know, you, uh, I, I've, seen, I've seen people, Bible school students, um, you know, because we've been in California for several years now, and you see Bibles, because now we've talked to pastors after these, these people have come back from Bible school, and we've seen Bible school students who did really well while they were in Bible school, but when they got home back to their home church, they fell apart. You know why? Because they didn't work out their own salvation. They didn't put maximum effort into doing what they needed to do. They were only did well because there was somebody in their Bible school that was overseeing them all the time, telling them what to do and making sure that they stayed in line. But when they got back out on their own and nobody was there actually, you know, overseeing them, 
it all went up in smoke. You know, that's what's wrong with some believers. They do good as long as they're in church. (laughs) They do good as long as they're in church. No amens. But get them outside church. By Tuesday afternoon, they've fallen apart. You know, it's, it's amazing. You've got to work these things out. Paul said, work them out. Um, you know, and, and the word identity is used a lot. I don't identify with this. I don't identify with that. I don't identify. Somebody comes along and says, well, I, I don't identify with being a, a male. I, I, I feel like a female. How in the world could any male ever know what a female feels like? Are you kidding me? Really? No. No. So you don't go by feelings. Your experience does not make any difference to the Word of God. You know, you can't get up in the morning and say, well, I don't feel so, so joyful today. doesn't matter what you feel like. The joy of the Lord is, is in you. Well, I don't feel like going to church. Well, the Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. So it doesn't matter what you feel like. I've had to tell myself that many a time. Don't matter what you feel like. Get yourself up and you get dressed and you get down there. You got to preach tonight. <laughs> yeah, see, that happens. You know, so it doesn't matter what your experience is. It only matters what the Word says. Every person has worth. You know how I know that? Even people who are not born again have great value. Go to John three sixteen. Mm-hmm. The scripture we all know and love. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He didn't qualify that with a certain group of people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You know, and and honestly... You know, just if you've ever sold anything on eBay or let go or Craigslist or whatever, you know, and you think it's really, really valuable, and you get bombarded with the fact that it's not nearly that valuable, so nobody's willing to pay that. Value is really just really kind kind of comes. It's naturally speaking by what somebody's willing to pay for it. You know, you think you've got this prized possession, and you're going, "I'll give you five bucks." They're going, "Ah, oh, what?" But see, God saw so much value in every single person that he put a high price. He was willing to pay a high price for every single person. Whether they ever receive him or not, he paid the same price for them. And so we need to see every person, born again or not born again, as a valued possession, as a valued person, as a valued being that God loves so much that he gave the most valuable thing he had. And when we can, we can see people in this world who are not always nice, if we can see them for the, for the worth that God has assigned to them, you know, it's so much easier to deal with them. Um, in, in Roman days, um, a Roman could adopt another adult as their heir. And we see a correlation. Well, this is what the example Paul used over in Romans eight fifteen. Talk about the spirit of adoption. And in, in Roman days, Roman could, if he had no heir, he could adopt another adult and make him his heir. And that person became like first in line. I mean, like eldest son kind of first. But here's the deal. He could say, I want to adopt you. But that person had to agree to be adopted. You and I have found ourselves in a place where God has said, I'm adopting you. I'm taking you into my family. You are my heir. I'm treating you like my firstborn. But you have to receive that. You have to receive the benefit of that adoption. The only thing, he's put it out there, and the only thing we can either do is accept it or reject it. But see, we don't want to do that. Because with, the, with that process comes all the benefits of being the heir. And part of that is knowing who you are, the fact that you are in a place of high esteem where God is concerned. Hallelujah. In, um, in 1 John 4, 
We're getting close to being done. 1 John 4. I'm going to read this from the New Living, or from the Living Bible. 1 John 4, starting in verse 16. Well, let's read it in King James first. And we have known and believed the love of God, believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and he that dwells in love dwells in God and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. Now listen to this in the Living Bible. We know how much God loves us because we have felt his love and because we believe him when he tells us that he loves us dearly. God is love and anyone who lives in love is living with God and God is living in him. As we live with Christ, our love grows more perfect and complete. So we will not be ashamed and embarrassed in the day of judgment, but can face him and with confidence and joy because he loves us and we love him. We need have no fear of someone who loves us perfectly. His perfect love for us eliminates all dread of what he might do to us. If we are afraid, it is for fear of what he might do to us and shows that we are not fully convinced that he loves us. That's, a, that's pretty good, isn't it? When you're not fully convinced that he loves you, there's dread. But you know, when you are fully convinced, you'll always run to him, no matter how many mistakes you make, no matter how many times you flubbed up again. You see, Adam and Eve, they, they didn't know how much God loved them. In spite of their sin, they did not know how much God loved And so they hid themselves. You know, fear, it talks about the fear here. And, you know, fear for God, there's a reverence. You know, that, that comes not fear like, oh, I'm scared of you, but fear as in reverence that we need to have for God. But we don't need to fear God from, a, from an, a, a frightened sense. God loves us no matter what. You never have to be afraid to go to God and say, Father, you know, I, I messed up. I'm, I'm so sorry. You know, I... You don't have to stay stay away from. I mean, I see so many people, you know, who make huge mistakes, and yet they run from God instead of to God. And the only reason they run from Him is because they really don't understand how much He loves them. They don't understand the value that He's placed on them. They've never seen it. They've never quite understood it. In John seventeen twenty three. Jesus said, Father, I want you to show them that you love them just like you love me. Man, that's a major statement. Father, show them that you love them just like you love me. I mean, how much more could anybody be loved than Jesus? And yet he, he was so confident. He says, Father, show them, just demonstrate to them how, that you love them just like you love me. Because in verse 24, it says that you loved me before the foundation of the world. He loved you from the foundation of the world. That's how much God loves you. Hallelujah. And so just to kind of end this tonight, you know, there's a song that Cindy Black has on one of her recordings, and it's, uh, He Sees Me in Him. And the, the chorus of it goes like this. It says, Now when he sees me, He sees me in him. He no longer sees a sinner, an outcast, a beggar, or what I once had been. He sees me through the cross, the blood, and the resurrection. He sees me raised up, seated next to him in heaven. When he sees me, he sees me in him. Isn't that wonderful? God is trying his best to get us all to understand that he loves us just like he loves Jesus. How can that be? Well, if you have more than one child, you tell me how you can love them both equally. You do. And see, God is the same way. He loves all of his children the same. He will always love you. You are precious. You are vital. You're important to him. He's made you kings and priests. He's, he's called you a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. 
He's got so many things that he's attached to you of what you are to him. And when you understand that and you realize that and you walk in that and you esteem that word that he's given us about who we are, then I'm telling you what, we can walk through life with our head held high. There's no lack of self-esteem, you know, in us because we know who we are. We know what we have. We know what we can do. Hallelujah. So, you know, that's, I suspect, the conclusion of our little mini-series on, uh, on this life. I don't really know what to call it, you know. We, you know, I, I didn't want, I was hoping nobody would, would take any, any umbrage with um, things I've said the last couple of weeks when I talked about dealing with the flesh. But I'm telling you what, nobody says those kind of things with an intent to offend or hurt or dismay because as a parent, you correct your child because you love them. You know, as, as, as pastors, you know, we take the word of God and we put it out there and sometimes it's not always pleasant. Sometimes it's a toe-stepping sermon, but it's designed to be a help. If you will receive it, it will be a help to you. If you take it and you apply it, you let God talk to you about how, how you apply some of these things. If you have issues with, with self-esteem, go to the Word of God. Go get that little book and take it and do what I said. Write those scriptures down and then write something about how this applies to you. I'm telling you, it can change you. And that's what it's designed to do. It's designed to change you from the inside out. God never tells us anything that's not designed to help us. At Impact Family Church, it is our desire to see you blessed through the power of the Word of God. We have been helping people to change their world for over 25 years through our dynamic ministries and teaching. If you are going to be in the North Central Florida area and are interested in attending our services or just want more information about us, you can visit us online at www.impactfamilychurch.com.